and verse 15. You know, I had some friends of ours that decided one day they were going to go for a drive and go to the store, and it was an evening, and they had been married for a few years, and they were going to the store to just kind of walk around, get out of the house. I think it was a Friday, and they were leaving the house. They decided to go peruse the store. When you, when you grow up in a small town where there's not a ton to do, walking around like a mire could be like a Friday night activity. <laughs> and so they went there, you know, looking at some, some home goods or whatever the case may be. Maybe they were looking at some baby clothes for their newborn And the terrifying reality hit them that they had forgotten their baby at home. They got all the way to the store and realized that they had a newborn. They hadn't yet adjusted. This was their first one. They hadn't yet adjusted to having children. And they forgot. Isn't it amazing how sometimes, as people, we can miss the most important things. We can forget the baby at home, so to speak. I was reflecting on this recently. My wife and I went to the store. We went to the store with our kids. We had them all. I'm almost positive. (laughs) And we were going there to pick up a prescription. But as we got there, you know, there's like a discount aisle not too far from there, and then we needed to grab some groceries, and then we're thinking about a kid's birthday we got coming up, and oh, we should snag something. And we're checking out, and we're leaving, and my wife goes, oh my goodness, the prescription. And she got there just in time to see that they had closed three minutes ago. We missed the most important thing. Right? How, how ridiculous would it be to miss what's most important how, how crazy would it be, you know, I've been thinking a lot about Oregon, where we came from, and, and the beauty, and I just, I really enjoy it there. Enjoyed Oregon. And we're happy to be in, very pleased to be in, in Michigan, where we're from. But I was thinking how ridiculous it would be to go all the way to Oregon, where we lived, and be within an hour from the Pacific Ocean. And to not go see the Pacific Ocean. It would be ridiculous Or how insane it would be to live in Michigan and never go to the Great Lakes. Never experience some of the natural beauty around us. Well, here Paul has a prayer that he's sharing with the Ephesians. And he's going to be sharing about how we need our hearts enlightened to see the magnificent blessings that we have in Christ. Don't miss what's most important. Don't miss the beautiful reality of what we have in Christ. You know, I was thinking, the scenario recently, I, we, we went to a pastor's lunch or uh, in a pastor's meeting, and I was driving with Pastor Ken, and it was a beautiful sunny day, and I broke perhaps his biggest rule that he has on a beautiful sunny day. I had the sunroof closed right? And he thought 
How in the world could you be outside on a beautiful sunny day and not want the sun shining on you and feeling the warmth and the beauty that comes with the rays and, and knowing that winter is over mostly and spring is here and, and summer's around the corner and why would we not want to feel the, the warmth of those sun rays on us and, and why would we want to exist as Christians and, and believers and walk through life and not feel the warmth? of the promises of God in our lives. Why would we want to exist that way? Why in the world would I want the sunroof closed? But that's how we live sometimes. Our hearts can be darkened. We can forget what we have in Christ. We can choose the fleeting desires of this world over the beauty of what we have in Christ. And we can block out the sunlight of his promises Oh, that we would bask in them. Ephesians 1.15, Paul wrote, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not, give, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as people so easily deceived who often miss the beauty of what we have in Christ. We come to you in need of your spirit to speak to us Lord, to show us what we cannot see apart from you. To see the immeasurable riches, Lord, that we have in Christ. To see your greatness. To see the working of your power in our lives. To see our inheritance that we have and the hope to which you've called us. Refresh us with your word and the truth from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Countless times as a child, I would wake up and I would see my mom reading her Bible. My mom is disciplined in this way. And I would come out maybe 5.30, 6 in the morning, I'd see a light on. And I'd peek out there and see that my mom was reading her Bible and praying. She was consistent. She is still alive today, to be clear. She is consistent in that. 
Even now when I'm there in the mornings, I'll see her with her Bible out and praying. And I would wonder what that communion, that time alone in prayer with God looked like. And desiring more insight, I eventually bought her a journaling Bible about six or seven years ago. And I said, Mom, share that. Like, write, write your thoughts as you're reading God's word and your prayers and just what's going on in your heart. Doesn't, I, I, but at the end, right, should I outlive you or should you be done with it at some point? Can I have it? Can I read some of the thoughts of your time that you had with God? And so she's doing that currently for me. And I'm not looking for profound, exegetical insights, right? I'm hoping that she doesn't start trying to get into the the Greek language of what this word means here. We can buy any book that would do that. But I'm hoping for a book that is distinctly my mom's book of communion with her Savior. Have you ever wondered what communion with some of the various saints throughout the world looked like? Their communion with God looked like? Have you ever thought when you read the passage about Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day, what that consisted of? What that interaction looked like? Have you ever wondered how Noah communed with God as he was building his ark? Or Enoch? who was raptured, what that looked like, and he walked with God, what is that, and how did that look, and I I would love more insight into what that looked like. Abraham, as he was wandering from Ur to a place that he didn't even know, he's leaving his home and everything behind, and I'm I'm just curious, what, what did that communion look like? And there's many people that we can name, it's, isn't it a gift to get the Psalms and we get glimpses of David's communion with God? a gift to us, we think, oh, I felt that same way. I felt the way you feel there. We get glimpses of this even in church history. We think of, you know, John Bunyan's one that I've been thinking of uh, lately, and he was, um, I, I believe, a dozen or more years he was in prison. What did his time alone with God look like? What was he saying? How did that shape out? What truths was he holding to? The Valley of Vision is a bunch of Puritan prayers. It's a book. And it's a book of Puritan prayers that all it is is just examples of Puritans' communion with God, their time praying to God, reflecting on God's promises. And it is, it's been an amazing selling book because many people have wondered, how did the Puritans commune with God and how can I commune with God and should I pray these prayers, right? We, we wonder about people's communion with God, what perhaps that looked like. Well, here we have a glimpse into Paul's communion with God. He's interacting. He's praying for his church. What is Paul's prayer for, his, for the church at Ephesus? And it's similar to some of the prayers that he prays in other places in Scripture, such as Colossians 1. And Paul's prayer is that the church would give their Attention and their focus towards understanding what is theirs in Christ Jesus. And he begins this passage with this statement, for this reason. For what reason? What's the reason? Is a question. Well, last week the the reasons were explained. The blessings that we have in Christ. So, if you remember, I'm sure many of you guys have these, you guys wrote them down last week. You guys have been memorizing them through the week. But in case you haven't, 
Here are some of the blessings that Pastor Ken mentioned last Sunday. The blessings that we have in Christ is that we are blessed and privileged. We're chosen and cherished. We're holy and blameless. We're accepted, included, and adopted. Those who are in Christ are forgiven and cleansed. We're entrusted with the mysteries of God. We're spiritually wealthy, and we are sealed, safe, and secure. So for this reason, for the reasons of all these blessings that we have in Christ, and because he's heard of these people's faith and their their love for Christ, he's praying for them that they would grasp what they have in Christ, that they would dwell on the, the glorious realities of what is theirs in Christ, that they would know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Colossians 1.9, Paul prays similarly. He says, And so from the day we've heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That the way that Paul often prays is that people, that their wisdom and their understanding would increase so that they could understand who God is and how to walk in a way that's worthy of God. Later in Ephesians 3.18, he prays that the church would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That Paul's ministry was devoted to helping God's people understand the surpassing worth of what we have in Christ. Paul's prayer is for the people to have wisdom and knowledge of Christ and his resurrection so as to awaken their hearts and strengthen their resolve. So we're going to look at the content a little bit closer of Paul's prayer. We're going to look at the effect of Paul's prayer, what was he hoping would happen? And we're going to look at the basis of Paul's prayer. By whose authority, by whose power is he making this request? So first, the the content of, of Paul's prayer, which we've been discussing a little bit, is surrounding this idea of wisdom and revelation. In verse 17, He says he doesn't, in in verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. This is the priority for Paul and his prayer. This is such a priority, this, this, this content is such a priority for Paul that he describes it as praying without ceasing. Other places, he'll say things like, day and night I've been praying for you. This was of such a priority for Paul that he would lay down his life for this. He would travel far. He would go through beatings and shipwrecks and pain and punishment for this. For this prayer, for for this truth to be known amongst God's people. That his, the content of his prayer is not simply based around day-to-day desires, needs, wants. Like it can be for us. 
Now, family gets sick. We should pray for those things, right? It's, it's good to pray for, for family getting sick or for, for people hurting. And, and I'm, I'm definitely not saying that we shouldn't pray for those things. But I want us to see that what Paul's praying for is a deeper reality. What Paul's priority is, is something deeper and beyond that. For us to be filled, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus would fill us with the spirit of wisdom and of the revelation in the knowledge of him. And it's, it's beyond something that even, even a sickness or a difficulty that we might have, that this is something greater that even in our sicknesses, even in our pains, we can be filled with the spirit of wisdom and the knowledge of who God is and his work in us. Perhaps you've been at a prayer gathering where medical needs or something like that were the only thing that was ever mentioned. Now, needs are important. Right, Paul mentions this. Needs are important. Uh, sicknesses, they're important to think about. In Philippians 2, Epaphras, or Epaphroditus, he talks about how if he would have been sick and, and died, that he would have had sorrow upon sorrow. And so there is a reality in which Paul's saying that those things are impactful and there is an importance. So it's not wrong to care or pray for physical needs. But our priority is always the state of our soul. And our relationship with Christ. Jesus himself taught on this. He says, don't fear the person who can kill your body. Fear the one who, when your body is died, can cast your, hell in, or cast your spirit into hell, right? What he's saying is, is we prioritize the, the spiritual above the physical. That our priority in prayer is the glory of God. It's that we would know him. That we would have wisdom to see him. We would understand who he is and what he is at work doing. I'm sure if we were to take time, many of you guys could testify to the reality that some of the most difficult things, right, some of the hardest things that you've encountered in life, God was at work and in the center of. Some of the times God has said no to your prayer for physical healing of a loved one. In that, he has often worked, demonstrated his love for you, cared for you, showed you more of who he was and is. This is Paul's priority, that we would know Christ, that we would know who God is, that our dead souls would live again, that the spiritually blind would see this is our priority in prayer, that our, our spouses and children and parents and grandchildren would see Christ. That they, that they would see him for who he is, the, the name above all names, the one who is above all and in all and working through all, that we would glorify him, that we would forsake sin and live and walk with the miraculous joy of knowing, of getting to know the living God. This is our, our, our priority in prayer, that we would have a spirit of wisdom, that we would have an understanding of who he is. That Paul's prayer, the content, should point us to our greatest need, the presence and work of God in our soul. It's our greatest need. Perhaps you don't see yourself in need of God's work in your soul today. 
can I encourage you and implore you to run to God's word and to see the value of what it means to know Christ, to see that it impacts all of life? We'll talk more about that in a moment. So what is, so the content of of Paul's prayer is there in verse 17, that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. But what is the effect of Paul's prayer? What is he hoping will happen? And he says that in the next verse. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know. So he's going to list three things that we might know, but what Paul is praying for is that our, our, the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to see He gives us illustrations or uh, expressions of what we're hoping to see that we have in Christ, the reality to which he has called his people. He says that you would, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. He says, first, the the hope to which he has called you. And this this idea of hope is not a wishful thinking. Like, I hope it all works out. I hope for good things in life. I hope things go well today. I hope I pass this test. (laughs) That's not what he's describing, but he's, he's describing a confidence, an assurance that comes through knowing God's promises to those who believe in that it is a glorious hope. And he describes that in the next thing he lists there. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That those who are in Christ have a glorious inheritance of reconciliation with God. Those who are in Christ possess all things. For they have Christ. What greater thing could there be? We not only have an inheritance, but we have a seal and a guarantee of that inheritance that's already been shed abroad in the hearts of those who are in Christ, and that's his spirit, which was talked about verse 13, I believe. Here's how one person described the glorious inheritance in the saints. He said that it's God-placing a value on our soul, and he's to the point where he would give us a glorious inheritance. He says, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce said, that God should set such a high value on a community of sinners to give them a glorious inheritance. Sinners who have been rescued from perdition and still bear so many traces of their former state would be too incredible were it not made clear that he sees them in Christ. That the riches of his glorious inheritance that he describes here are are almost too incredible to understand that the God of universe would describe the riches of his glorious inheritance, that he would describe that's what he's giving to us who are sinners and fail and fall short so often would be too much to bear were it not that we know who Christ is and what he's done on the cross for us. But the riches of the glorious inheritance shows that those are in Christ. An understanding to have is that he's placed great value on us through Christ. Bruce goes on to say that we are the first fruits of Christ's reconciled universe. So if we think about it this way, that 
that sin at the fall, when, when God created a world, he created a perfect world, and he created humans, and Adam and Eve sinned. They made a decision to reject their creator, and the curse spread throughout the world. But God sent Christ, his son, and established a relationship with people. And he is reconciling people to himself. And he will reconcile all things to himself. He will create a new heaven and a new earth. Colossians 1, 19 and 20, he says, In him, speaking of Christ, in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Revelation 21.5 says, And he who was seated on the throne, looking at the end times, he said, Behold, I am making all things new. So we have a, a, a world that was, was cast into darkness through the fall and through their rejection of who God is. And God has desired a relationship with humanity He sent Christ to die for us. He's reconciled those who are in Christ to himself. And through us, he is spreading his reconciliation throughout the world. He is making peace with people throughout the world. Through his church. And he began his work in us by giving us a new heart, Ezekiel 11.19 says. Jeremiah 31, 33 talks about the covenant that he's made with his people. So God has placed great value on us because he has has purposed to begin his process of making all things new. He's purposed to start that work in our hearts. Giving us a new heart. And now we get to, as the church, go out and spread God's reconciliation to the uttermost parts of the world. It's a glorious privilege to be a part of. Hebrews 8.10, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That those who are in Christ get to be his people. And as his people, we get to receive the glorious inheritance. We become his children. We receive the inheritance. We will experience one day in its fullness in heaven. We get glimpses of it today. And a guarantee in his spirit dwelling within us. The third thing he lists, the effect of of Paul's prayer is that our, the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to see the greatness, the immeasurable greatness of his power. Are your eyes open to see the greatness of Christ's power? What is this power? He's going to discuss that in the next section. It has to do with Christ conquering death, reigning in heavenly places, high above all things, the most exalted name that can be named in this age and the one to come. The head of God's church, 
Christ. Paul wants us to grasp the greatness and power of what is ours in Christ. See, dwelling on the reality of the hope that we have in Christ is not just a feel-good thought. Right? It's not just me hoping to pat you on the back, say, have a good day, you got a lot in Christ. So, like, have a good day, right? That's not, that's not the only desire in this, but that understanding our hope in Christ actually impacts the way that we live day to day. That this is a, a truth that we understand with our head, that we, we love with our heart, and we live out with our hands. Dwelling on the reality of the hope that we have in Christ should drive our heads to study, our hands to serve, and our hearts to the sweet satisfaction of what it means to know Christ. Hebrews 11, I'm sure that's a a very famous chapter. Many of you guys have read through that. Some people have described it as the hall of faith. But dwelling on the reality of, of hope that they had in God and would have ultimately drove many of these people to act in great ways in faith. Many of them didn't see the full, the full light of God's promise, but they still walked by faith. They could see the promise afar off. Let me read the passage. It says, Hebrews eleven thirteen. after it's listed, Noah and Enoch and Abraham, it says, these all died in faith, not having received the great promise, the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking about the land from which they had gone out, then they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, and that's a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call them their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What What does that mean that these people who are called out of their homelands if they would have just dwelt on the goods and the riches of that past life and that past homeland, they could have returned and made an existence and a life there. But because they've dwelled on the realities of what they have in Christ, they get to experience the hope that comes with knowing him, and they will one day live in the city that Christ has built for them. So it is in our lives If we simply dwell on the things that we, perhaps you've had in your former life before you knew Christ, or or the cares and concerns of this world, if that is the only thing that drives our attention and focus, if it is only on how much money am I putting away for this thing, or how much am I getting uh, here, or how much am I uh, preparing for my next vacation, or whatever the case may be, if that's only where our thoughts go, the cares and concerns of this world, if our focus can never rise above the stress that we have in work or the desire to purchase the next thing or, or the glorification that we may get by the praise of a certain individual, if we can never get beyond that, we will miss what's most important. We will have left our child at home. We have so much in Christ. It's in the light of his glory and grace that the things of this earth fade. 
if you're living for the, the fleeting pleasures of sin, your joy will always be fleeting. But if you secure it to Christ, you will have an everlasting joy. So the content of Paul's prayer was for this wisdom and knowledge in the revelation of God a better understanding of who God is and what we have in Christ. And the effect of that is that our hearts would be enlightened to to love, to see, to experience his hope, his greatness, his power. And the basis for Paul's prayer is in this final section in, in verse 20 through 23. According to the working of his great might, it says in verse 19, and then it says in 20, This is his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That the, the greatness of his power the, um, is, is revealed in Christ and his work. And the basis for Paul's prayer is the resurrection power of Christ. That his resurrection and exaltation is the demonstration of his power. One author notes that in this passage as we see, there's, there's evidently a succession of planes in the heavenly realm. Because we're, we're told that there's principalities and powers of darkness that are at war in the heavenly realms and are tempting and destroying and seeking to destroy. But then we see Christ in this realm. And he has been exalted high above all of these things. And he has ascended above all to the heavens. And so he gives us this language of different elevations in the heavenly realm. Of who is exalted and who is transcendent. And that is Christ's role. He is, transcends high above all other powers of darkness. Sometimes as Christians, we don't live as if Christ transcends all powers of darkness. We often live and speak and act as if we have to be afraid of the powers of darkness. Christian, you do not have to be afraid. You do not have to be afraid. And it is Christ who reigns above all. It is his name that one day every person will bow before. And the beautiful reality is what he says here at the end of this section. He says he has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. You know, when I've thought about Christ being given as head of the church, I would think about it in one narrow way. That Christ is the authority of the church. And that may not be wrong. It's not wrong. He is the authority of the church. But what it's saying here in Ephesians and what struck me is it said that Christ, who is head over all things, has been given to the church. So it's not just a matter of Christ has been given to be your authority. But it is a matter of Christ who is more powerful than all things 
dwells within the church, dwells as head of the church. So we don't just have the authority of Christ kind of over us, so to speak, but we actually have the gift of Christ that the most powerful being is on our side. Christ isn't just the head over the church, right, in authority, but he is for the church. And he has assured that the church will not fail, will not fall before the gates of hell. He has assured that his gospel will be spread to the uttermost parts of the world. That all things were placed under his authority and he has been given to the church. He is seated in the heavenly places where spiritual warfare takes place and he is seated on the throne above all. The God who sits above all powers and principalities has been given to you and for you in Christ. He exists as leader of the church. To have Christ is to have all things. There's no greater reality for Paul than to ground his prayer in Christ. Who he is and his resurrection power. So Paul's prayer for the church is one of hope and joy and satisfaction. It's one of wisdom and rest and depth that we should find when we read it. It's one that we should share with others and pass down because it shows the, the preeminent worth of Christ. You know, my mom may not complete her journaling Bible, right? She might not get that done. She might not fill out every page. I might not get it someday. It might not get passed down to me. It might not make it to me for whatever reason. But my parents have passed down a legacy of what it means to know Christ. They have showed me what authentic faith looks like and that the promises of God's word are true. And in that way, I have everything that I need for this life. That if you know Christ today and you are here, you possess everything. The blessings of God are not simply a, a fire insurance for the day of judgment. They're not just a feel-good sentiment to get you through your day. They're not just a trite expression to make you feel better about your life and death. They're not simply, the promises of God aren't something that we simply enjoy on a Sunday in an air-conditioned room. It's not a lucky rabbit's foot that we, that we rub. It's not a fortune cookie that we read. It's not antiquated thoughts from dead people. But the blessings of God are true realities that are rooted and grounded in Christ himself. They're the promises of greater worth than all the world has to offer. They're the privileges of royal inheritance that believers have in Christ. They're the assurances that though you may wander and fail, our creator cherishes you. They're adoption papers for the spiritually orphaned. They're wealth for the bankrupt. They're inclusion for the rejected. They're blamelessness for those who stand condemned. And they're security for all those who fall in spiritual peril before God Almighty. That the blessings of God are something to be treasured and loved and lived in. To be prayed, to be, to be shared, to be exclaimed from the mountains, right? The blessings of God are a beautiful gift to those who are in Christ and they should be our greatest longing and our deepest love. 
And if you sit here today and you've not grasped the beauty of the promises of what believers have in Christ, can I compel you and implore you to fall down before your God and to repent and to by faith trust in him. And these, these promises of eternal security and assurance of what we have in Christ can be yours as well. And if you're in Christ and, and you're, you've noticed the eyes of your heart becoming dead and you've, you've been chasing the worldly pleasures of this life and you're, you're wondering what it means to be alive and you're questioning things, can I assure you to run back to Christ? To gaze at him with fresh eyes again and to consider all that you have in him. Don't leave the baby at home. Don't forget the most important thing. Don't forget what you have in Christ. Paul's prayer is my prayer for the church as well. It's our elders' prayer for the church. That our hearts would be awakened to see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ.